more intimately connected to this topic as well as through her intellect. So we're really honored to have her, and she's been a great partner and friend to a lot of the people in this community. So without further ado, this is Abby Holmstreet. Hi. Hey. I'm super honored uh, to be here. Wow, I'm really loud. It's okay. It's good. Everyone can hear me, yeah? Thank you so much for having me. I think that this question um, is the most important question for people in the West, particularly. Um, this is hands down the hardest question uh, to talk through, the most complex, the most nuanced. Uh, other questions are contingent upon this question and vice versa. This is the hardest question to talk through with non-believers uh, and also with believers. Um, to wrestle through this is probably the most important uh, process we can go through as believers. So I really admire and respect the earnestness and the willingness and the investment of sitting down and talking about a super depressing topic um, <laughs> after a long day of work, <laughs> as you're like scrounging to survive the day to day grind. Um, I, I really hope that this can in some way be exhorting or uplifting, even though we're gonna be covering a lot of material that is a bit dark. Um, I love dark material because I'm a freak. Um, so I, I'm the kind of person who like would binge watch Law & Order like a whole like 18 like seasons in like a month. Um, I, uh, in graduate school, I studied apologetics um, and I studied counseling and my joint thesis was on the problem of evil from a philosophical approach. So looking at how different philosophies and religions answer this, every worldview has to account for the kind of data points in reality, some of which are crazy amounts of suffering and pain and torment. Um, and then also looking at the existential, experiential side of it, which would be uh, the personal experience of suffering of yourself or others. So this is, this is something where we can get heady with it, and there's a lot of philosophical discourse, there's a lot of data points and facts and figures that I can share. But through that, we're gonna dive deep into the heart of the matter, the underlying questions and struggles that we have. If at any point you feel that I am being flippant, uh, with the subject matter, it's not because I don't care, it's because we don't have time. It's um, <laughs> like a literal thing that we have to struggle with. It's like not enough time to delve into all the traumas. Um, but I really do care. Why have I come into this myself? Um, that's a really good question. In the same way, a lot of people who go into like psychology supposedly are like kind of screwed up and they try to fix themselves with their brains. Like, I did that too, but like through a really weird avenue. So I, I figured out like partly through grad school, I was trying to fix my problems with philosophy um, and theology. Um, and so I, I do understand that um, there are complex ways that our heart tries to solve dilemmas. And so I, I myself went through a lot of traumas as a young person. Uh, between the ages of 15 and 23, over 12 people I dearly loved died. Some by murder, crazy accident, um, medical conditions that were inexplicable and took their lives. Um, so there was that, being a victim of a violent crime um, as well. Uh, screwed up family, you know, uh, connections with religious folks who said like, oh, there's abundant life in Jesus, and then watching as their lives fall apart and wondering like, uh, I don't understand. So I under that there, there's a lot of emotional and volitional issues that come uh, underloading all of our intellectual quandaries. 
So I acknowledge the personal things that we all come into this room with. I was struck by that earlier this afternoon, that none of us are just uh, reading books. The books are reading us as well, especially when it comes to, uh, let's say, the Word of God, what it says about human condition, and what we bring to the table is loaded with all of our experiences. So I want to acknowledge that um, I'm sure that the suffering that has been withstood by each person who's in this room, or by someone you know, that's deeply painful, and the questions that come with that are really important to me. I really understood the depth of why this is important to consider when I was working at International Justice Mission in DC last summer. I was working in a think tank doing research, and um, initially I was just supposed to do a whole bunch of nerding out, um, but then something really unprecedented and horrible happened. The office was forbiddingly still on the morning that we found out that our lawyer, client, and driver had been abducted. They were on their way home from a police abuse of power trial in Kenya. We had few doubts about what had happened because of all the corruption. We knew exactly probably who took them. And uh, this large anti-slavery organization in the world, in fact, the largest, full of the most competent and brilliant, compassionate people you could imagine. I watched even seasoned lawyers wring their hands as days dragged on while the men remained missing. We were perplexed, torn, angered, and scared. There were many tear-stained cheeks when the bodies finally washed up on the, the riverbank. My role then shifted because of this tragedy, um, as well as another murder that happened in Uganda. These were unprecedented for, for IJM. Um, and I realized as my role changed, my job then became on crisis response team to come up with pastoral care and a manual of theological support that could be distributed among staff at headquarters in DC as well as in the 17 field offices as they deal with all sorts of traumas and crimes. Um, I have experience in how to apply philosophy to human rights violations around the world, including land grabbing from widows and, and orphans, um, police abuse of power cases, um, child exploitation and sex trafficking, human trafficking, cyber sex trafficking, all the sorts of um, egregious acts that you could have possibly imagined. And I realized that the, the, it taught me how much our reactions to injustice reveal our underlying beliefs and assumptions, some of which we didn't even know we had until we find ourselves reacting. Um, a lot of times you can control how you act. You can control what you say you believe. You can control that. You can be really thoughtful about it. That's great. But you really know what you internalize and believe about human condition, about God, about the world as you're reacting. Are you responding from a place of deep assurance of what's what, or are you reacting out of the emotion? And I found that even the most expert people who've been dealing in this sort of field of horrible traumas for so long, really wrestling with all these questions. We find ourselves shocked by grief, enraged by injustice, responding to something in a way that's very mysterious and yet real. This notion comes up of what ought to be the case versus what is the case. And we have this tension of, this isn't ought to be. Well, where did I get that sense of what ought to be or what ought to have been, by which I'm so enraged that that's not the case? Interestingly, um, one of the theologians says, we are capable of incredible accomplishments as the human race. Space travel, huge leaps in communication, information processing, medicine, technology. Um, we find the beauty in STEM, right? Like here in Silicon Valley specifically, it's this strong humanism, this optimism that's just like, yes, we will fix ourselves. And yet we can't control ourselves. And we see suicide rates 10 times the average of other nations. As we're more and more comfortable having all of our needs met, and yet 
were miserable. The, the addiction to painkillers, to anti-anxiety medications is higher now than it has been in the past. We see this, this, this idea that relationships are, that should be thriving because your needs are met are now falling apart. And the people who are, should be the most satisfied in their lives are the most depressed and miserable. Somehow, we're realizing our humanism just isn't cutting it. And there's something wrong with the person in the mirror. C.S. Lewis says, in A Grief Observed, come, what do we gain by evasions? We are under the harrow and can't escape. Reality, looked at steadily, is unbearable. And how and why does such reality blossom or fester here and there into the terrible phenomenon called consciousness? Why did it produce things like us who can see it and seeing it recoil in loathing? This is a pretty bleak confession of what it might feel like looking at the world around us. And it's like people tell me, oh, it's 2017. Are we really struggling with this? Well, I don't think the year changes human condition. It's just sort of like playing whack-a-mole with human depra depravity. You, you, you beat down this over here. Okay, we're seeing less violence and crazy killing over here. But oh, now we see insidious crime and deception over here. So if it really is a symptom control, we should be fine. But what is the source of the issue? These are questions that we have to understand. So this is one reason why the problem of evil is so important, because who can give the best account of all the data points in existence? Is it your worldview? Is it coherent and consistent? Are you shying away from the darkness? Are you able to look directly at the darkness, directly at your own self in the mirror, and understand what could be going on? Then there's other things like suffering, just suffering in general, the, the loss of a loved one. C.S. Lewis says, in grief, nothing stays put. One keeps on emerging from a phase, but it always recurs. Round and round, everything repeats. Am I going in circles, or do I dare hope I'm on a spiral? And if I'm on a spiral, am I going up or down it? How do we know if we're really progressing or regressing as human beings or in our own lives as we go through the twists and turns and plot twists of, of life and suffering? These are huge, huge questions. And as we dive into this, I want to stop and ask a discussion question for us really quick. Sheldon Menachem says, the best argument for Christianity is Christians, their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. <laughs> when they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug and complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. But though it is just to condemn some Christians for these things, perhaps, after all, it is not just, though very easy, to condemn Christianity itself for these things. Indeed, there are impressive indications that the positive quality of joy is in Christianity and possibly nowhere else. If that were certain, it would be proof of God of a very high order. So as we sit in that, I want to ask you, in what ways has the church alleviated suffering or comforted you in the midst of suffering? or advocated for empowering you out of suffering? And in what ways has the church failed you in your suffering? And did those experiences alter your view of God? So go ahead and take a minute and tell your neighbor, and then I'll ask for a couple people if you want to volunteer what you were saying.
sorry. Do I have a volunteer to say what what are the th- what are the experiences they had, or would it be the thing that the church? Once you wrap up, give me twenty seconds. Talk quickly about the suffering. <laughs> Jesus, uh, 
they can hurt you more deeply than anybody else. Or they can also be such, have a ministry of presence, literally clothing you, feeding you, loving you, sitting with you in grief, these things. And both of those things, are, that's complicated, right? Because they're supposed to be representing the same character of God. And yet, ooh, there's this tension. What's interesting to me about Christianity, similar to what Anika was saying, that unlike other religions in which you as a human being are striving for perfection, you are trying to become something, in Christianity, it's a gift to know God. And even though it's a gift, it's like sort of, you know, some people are not very, it's kind of a thankless gift, depending on people's uh, apprehension of it. And so we can judge the system by the abuse of the system rather than by what it's saying itself. So in other faiths, the people who are so determined, you know, if Christianity is true, then why aren't they so fervent with their faith the way that um, <coughs> or this Muslim or this Buddhist is? Well, because in Christianity, it's not dependent on the subject. It's the object of belief that saves, that changes. So I would encourage you, if you're mad at Christians, <laughs> Throughout scripture, there are embarrassing true stories of Christians being stupid and mean and evil. And interestingly, that's exactly what the gospel's promulgating. So as soon as you prove to me that a Christian is bad in ways, I'm like, you just proved the gospel true in yet another way. But what can you say about Jesus Christ of Nazareth? I guarantee you that he can withstand more scrutiny than you could possibly shove it in. So bring it on. Let's look at the system and not the abuse of the system. But moving into the problem of, of suffering and evil, uh, we can break it down into different patterns of ways that the world is really kind of crappy, um, if you will. Natural evils. And I put evil there because we have to do, as uh, Peterson says, he's a philosopher, he says, there must be a distinction between suffering and evil. All suffering is not evil, but all evil will result in suffering. Explaining the various ailments visible, whether they be physical, moral, or natural, is vital for alleviation of anxiety in human condition. Dostoevsky emphasized how haunting it is that humans are so inhumane to one another. The laments of Job in scripture demonstrate how unfair it seems that the righteous should suffer. And Aquinas explores how good could bring about or allow evil in the first place. There's these, all these nuances. What's interesting to me about natural evil, or as uh, John Hick would say, a malfunctioning of the natural world, um, which can take place as you know, earthquakes, celestial dangers, floods, hurricanes, tsunamis, tornadoes, fires, volcanoes, all these things which can horrifyingly alter your life in ways that are really rough. Um, not much news about natural evils from places where humans aren't. Um, so we're not really sure how that affects, like what a supernova, oh, oh, like so much devastation just now. Oh, so much but we don't hear about it because no humans are there to experience it. So it's not evil, it's, it's fine, it's a beautiful cosmic event. But if it upsets me or my family or something else, then all of a sudden it's evil. So evil, turns out, is a human experience. Um, and another thing interesting is if you sell insurance, you'll refer to these kinds of disasters as acts of God. Um, this doesn't matter if you're an atheist or whatever, this is an act of God. Interestingly, the love we feel experienced between each other, a beautiful sunset, um, flowers, and the smell of mountain air, none of that are, none of those are acts of God. But, you know, if a giant boulder and an earthquake lands in your car, act of God. Act of God. So, so it's a little bit of selective memory and like honing in on things we, we want. About, uh, uh, this is kind of like, if you were uh, committed to a spouse in marriage, 
and you only focus on the way that they annoy you, how, how healthy is that marriage going to be? Um, in contrast to looking at maybe the way that the acts of that person can bless you um, and comfort you. So anyway, I'm not going to get all preach about that. Uh, so there are natural evils, and then there are the things that we hate the very, very most, which would be um, uh, pain and suffering by the hands of humankind. Pain and suffering by each other. Now this is really, really interesting to me uh, because my brother is a military prison chaplain and he talks to prisoners all the time. And he's like, no one in prison is guilty. Wouldn't you know it? No one is guilty. Uh, this is also a, like, a fact that is described in Shawshank Redemption, um, in which they say, don't you know we're all innocent in here? Because we have an interesting thing as human condition. We want justice when someone else screwed up. We want mercy when we screwed up. Because see, if you knew more about what happened to me in the context I grew up in, if you knew about my family and the socioeconomic oppression I've been in, if you understood the complex nuances of all the reasons that I had to act out, you would have mercy on me. Don't do that to them. No, 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 no. They are done. This, this idea of this is a bad person versus this is a good person have a lot of personal preference in there of who it's involving. Every murderer probably wants mercy and has reasons for which they believe that the murder was necessitated, whose families would advocate for the ways that this, this murder was great. Anytime I, I, I consider dating someone in the past, my sister-in-law, like, he's really, really nice, you know, I don't know. And she's like, yeah, Ted Bundy was nice. <laughs> Made casseroles for the neighbors, you know, and then like murdered a lot of folks. And this is also the case of, you know, I, I'm sure, I'm sure that somewhere in the South, there was an old, a grandma who was super nice making brownies for the neighbor kids, who was a grandmother in the KKK movement. Was she not? See, there's a distinction between nice and good. And this idea that bad things are happening to good people is a conflation philosophically. This idea is based on personal preference, and it's very, very hard to have any sort of objective law happening with that sort of like judgment system. And in a culture like America, where we're very individualistic and where our emotions count more than facts, we have alternative facts now. Yeah. Um, I don't like that, so it's no longer a fact. This is the fact now. Really, because I don't think that's how like gravity works or like other laws of physics and mathematics. It's like you got the problem wrong. Try again. Um, but when it comes to things like suffering, what you feel and what your perspective on the situation is, is automatically right and everyone is accountable to you about the description of this. Interestingly, this is why Jesus was murdered. He says in John chapter 7, verse 7, they hate me because I tell them they do evil things. Turns out no one likes to be told that they've messed up and honestly own that. We don't want to do that. Uh, someone says also that moral evils are, are that there's, there's bad people over here and then we are victims. We're victims in our existence. We didn't ask to be on this planet. So our behavior, we didn't get a manual of how to behave. So this is just what it is. Good is based on who's in power, and who's in power and has the money, says who that's good, and then can exploit the rest of us. This is just a very depressing spot, and I can feel the mood in the room just dropping. But the question is, it's really inhumane. What we do to each other is what people would say. I would say, no, no, no. 
This is what humans do. Dr. Clay Jones at Biola goes into this in depth, and I'm just gonna go over a few bullet points that will deeply upset us, and then we can move on. Um, he says 11 million people were killed in the Holocaust. People were stripped, shot in the head, thrown into a ditch, then more bodies were thrown in on top of them. We know about the sweltering rail cars in which they were transported. We know about gas chambers, families being separated, how they could cremate over 4,000 people a day in the biggest camp. There was some engineer who graduated from college, called his mom, hey, with my engineering degree, I learned how to like, incinerate the most bodies, like I win. Um, could you imagine doing that with your Berkeley degree? There were over 40,000 camps and satellite camps, ghettos and brothels during the Holocaust. Unbelievably true. Unimaginable horrors that were institutionalized to be a machine of evil and death. Hitler said only one bolt is strong enough to not be able to be opened, and that is death. He said this 20 years before the Holocaust, before he was elected into power. He'd been talking and writing about wanting to kill the Jews and others and expunge parts of the human race. So there's no justification for people's lack of knowledge about his being evil before he got into such extensive power. So to shift blame of, no, 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 this is just this one evil dude's fault. Really? Because maybe there were some compromises that people took to get them to that space. In the same way that no one grows up, or you know, as a child says, I want to grow up and go to prison for murder or assault, or apparently a lot of like heroin addiction and ch bad checks um, in my research. <laughs> Striking number of people with bad checks in prison. Don't, don't write bad checks. Anyway, no one thinks, I'm going to go do this. But you know how you get there is one day at a time justifying your decisions. Justifying the decisions of others based on your personal preferences. It's not inhumane. Humans do this to each other. This is us. Look at it in the mirror. Look heavily. In the USSR, there were horrific realities. In the 1932-1933 Ukrainian genocide that occurred to stem the nationalism going on. Soviets sealed off borders and had dogs sniff out and take all the food so that seven million people starved to death. Journalists and historians say that the faces and bellies of the children were bloated, their eyes completely expressionless, expressionless, the humanity just wiped out. In 1937, Japan invaded Nanking, China, and, uh, and it was really resulted in the rape of Nanking. The Japanese tortured, raped, and killed 300,000 people. Irish Chang, in her book, as a historian, spoke of the horrible manner in which these people were tortured. Sons were forced to rape mothers while others watched. Women were raped and disemboweled by men while alive. Men were beat to the brink of death but not allowed to die yet. China killed many of their own as well. Between 26 to 30 million people were killed in camps in China. Emperor Shihang, uh, the Qin uh, Dynasty, buried alive 460 scholars, he writes in some of his work. And Mao Zedong said he buried alive 46,000 scholars, and they were one-upping each other of how many people they could kill. And live burial was a favorite form of execution in China and Japan at the time. And they would write back and forth, these leaders, of who had the most power and how they were exploiting others. The world and then the word decimate, something is decimated with suffering. It means to kill one out of 10. So in Rwanda in 1994, just in just 100 days, 800,000 people out of 8 million were killed, mostly by machete, just violent, just ransacked. 1915 to 1923, the, Tur the Turks murdered 1.2 million Armenians, and the phrase, crimes against humanity, was coined because of this event. In Cambodia, 2 million out of 7 million people as a whole population were killed Talk about genocide. If you want to talk about that, that was my graduate research was looking at, are humans good? You know what, after my work with IJM and all my research, no. After looking at and living with myself for a number of years, nope. 
I don't think so. Humans make decisions with their hearts that are destructive and selfish, and their head comes up with logic and justifications to justify the decisions of the heart. The smarter you are, you just have more data for your lawyer. And we all know what we think of lawyers. If you don't, so let's, I can say that because I have a lot of friends in law. I hope they listen to this. No, I'm just kidding. Um, interestingly, when you're looking at world religions, scripture is very steady about human condition and the character of God in the midst of the human condition. John 3.19 says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Second Peter 2.14, Having eyes full of adultery that never ceases from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Jeremiah 17.23, They did not listen or incline their ears to judgment, but stiffened their necks in order not to listen or take correction. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good or who never sins. Mark 7.21, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries. Proverbs 19.3, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. That one I shared last because it hurts me the most. When I look at my life, so much of my anger at God is me being angry at me. So in psychology, you call that displacement or projection. <laughs> like, um, but anyway, um, we'll, we'll move forward. We'll move forward into the official problem of evil. Now that I've made everyone mad and you want to storm out of the room, let's dive in. This problem of evil, how is it really? Let's get philosophical. Let's, not, let's just back away and not make accusations. Okay. Humanity is a struggle. Uh, the, the problem of evil is called the inconsistent triad. And this is where the existence of God is questioned. The idea of, is it possible for there to be an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good deity, like the God of the Judeo-Christian faith, and moral evils and natural evils we see to exist? How is that possible? If he's really all-good, he wouldn't want these evils and he wouldn't allow for it. If he's all-powerful, he could stop it. And, you know, um, if he's all-knowing, he would know how to stop it. So, considering these facts, God does not exist, or God is not good, or God is not powerful. So this is what the problem of evil delineates for us. Epicurus in 342 BC uh, had this thought. So I'm sorry if you really thought that you came up with this problem. Like, people have been arguing about it for, like, thousands of years. So, <laughs> it turns out nothing's known to the sun. So, the good news is that you have some material to look through. The bad news is you're not as smart as you thought when you thought you could come up with the argument to destroy Christianity. Okay. If <laughs> uh, David Hume, in Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, really made this point, he basically said God is not omnipotent, God is not all-loving, or evil does not exist. Because we look around and it clearly does exist, then God doesn't exist. So, we can... So there's some other people who did this, so I just wrote some dead guys two cents to the matter. Zeno, um, again, many years ago, he gives some explanations to the problem of evil that are different. So you can either say God doesn't exist, or you can say, perhaps there's a part and whole solution. If life is considered as a whole, misfortunes will fall into a meeting, meaningful pattern. Who has heard the phrase, all things happen for a reason? All things happen for a reason. Sometimes the reason is we're stupid. Sometimes the reason is people are jerks. Sometimes the reason is that. What's interesting is that although this feels right at first, in experience, we're never satisfied with that. Imagine as a crisis counselor, if a woman came in, sat down with me, and she said, I need a reason for why my seven-year-old was killed by that drunk driver. And I told her, listen, 
when people are intoxicated, their ability to operate heavy machinery decreases by a certain percentage. So unfortunately, the man who was intoxicated, who chose to drive, wasn't able to control his vehicle or be as observant as stimuli. And so your child, who's quite small, um, uh, was under the radar of his vision, and therefore that is the reason your child is dead. How do you think she would respond to me? Not well. Not well. It would not go well. What people want is not a reason, logistically, functional why, explanatory power. They want a purpose, a telos, a meaningful answer for by what power did this be allowed to happen in my life? And what good is it going to do? What am I supposed to do now? That was my only son. What am I going to do now? My heart has been ripped out of my chest. How do I live? Those questions can't be quantified, can't be put into a box. They don't, they don't seem to be sufficient in real time. Uh, other, other answers are Zeus, whoever he is, made this eternal law that men must learn by suffering. This was a common experience of like, if you're suffering, you're doing something right. You have an opportunity to learn. But that feels a lot harder to live out. Heigl and Wilder um, both said in the um, 1770 to you know, uh, 1897, individual suffering fits into the drama of history. So you know, a few hundred years ago, they were basically like, hey, your suffering uh, plugs into the human story in a significant way. Um, and so you should, there's some gratitude in that. There's some ways that that's just part of being human. Um, so a lot of these people are atheists, if you move on. Um, there's there's uh, Plotinus, Plotinus who basically said, okay, here, let's, let's do this a different way. We can't say evil is justified because it fits in the grand scheme or that God doesn't exist. Let's say evil doesn't exist, problem solved. Evil is not real, all reality is good. Evil is a negation of good. Evil is a negation of reality, therefore evil is not real. As a philosopher, my brain just exploded because <laughs> some of those things don't follow from the others. And yet this is what a lot of people try to say. If you see the Christian science building close by, they're neither Christian nor scientific, but they believe that essentially suffering is an illusion. Suffering is an illusion. Um, there's an interesting poem about uh, even if you think suffering is an illusion, if you sit on a pinprick and you respond to it, ah, jump off the chair, oh, I'm sorry, you're a hypocrite. Apparently, suffering isn't an illusion. Um, so this is this is always this is interesting. So Mary Baker Eddy and some of the people in the uh, philosophies and ideologies that that you can you can in, with your mind overcome suffering and realizing it's an illusion and you're all powerful and you don't need to be a victim of suffering. They are all dead. So I don't think it quite worked for them. They suffered. Um, Mary Baker herself was addicted to morphine before her death. And if, if suffering is an illusion and you realize it's an illusion, then why are you on morphine and then dead? These are, I'm not trying to accuse, I'm just pointing out facts and asking honest questions about a case. Um, but, the main, but the main issue is about calling something good or evil implies that there is a standard by which you can differentiate what is good and what is bad. That you can say whether something that's happening in your life is for good and whether it's happening for bad reason. Um, Richard Rorty, an American analytic philosopher, answers some of these questions because they they're angsty about this stuff like I am. And they say, if moral imperatives are not commanded by God's will, if they are not in some sense absolute, then what ought to be is simply a matter of what men and women decide should be. There's no source of judgment. 
Herbert Maurer, um, in Sin, the Lesser of Two Evils, as an American psychologist, says this, for several decades, we psychologists looked upon the whole matter of sin and moral accountability as a great incubus and acclaimed our liberation from it uh, as epoch-making. But at length, we've discovered that to be free from God in the sense, that is, to have the excuse of being sick rather than sinful, is to court the danger of also becoming lost. This danger is, I believe, betokened by the widespread interest in existentialism, which we are presently witnessing, in becoming amoral, ethically neutral, and free to do what we'd like, we have cut the very roots of our being, lost our deepest sense of selfhood and identity, and with neurotics themselves, feel ourselves asking, who am I? Why is my what is my deepest destiny? What does living even mean? Uh, the 19th century American humanist Robert Greene, in his journal, summed up this philosophy in The Gods in 1876. He says, happiness is the only good, the time to be happy is now, and the way to be happy is to make others so. So humanists believe that we should live, vote, choose jobs, relate to other people, spend and invest our money in ways that respect other people's rights, minimize suffering, and increase happiness. But as soon as you ask people to define the terms of each of those and how to get to it, all of a sudden, complete disagreement and complete chaos ensues. And it turns out that hedonism, the idea of living for pleasure, and what's, what's the best is to soak up all the pleasures of life and minimize all the really bad stuff of life on this scale. That's unhelpful. Dostoevsky talks about not just the weariness of pain that we've gone over, but the weariness of pleasure, which is what we're seeing in America, which is what we're seeing in the Silicon Valley, what we're seeing in our own lives. What if we're giving up what we want most for what we want most right now? And how do we know how to standardize that if we're taking away any possibility for objective morality whereby we can address the issue of suffering? So my question for you as we take another minute is how do we appeal to right and wrong making a case for good and evil either which way if there is no objective morality but our feelings? Which of our feelings are good and bad and why? And in your discussion, try not to borrow from a theistic ethical framework. Don't, don't, don't go by that as a Christian. But thinking about it, if, if there is no God, if there is no absolute standard whereby we know what's right and wrong, how do we do it? How do we do it? Note this also. Some people's feelings tell them to love their neighbors. Some people's feelings tell them to eat their neighbors. And they each have very compelling reasons for why they say these things. So take a minute
an idea. How, what is what did your pod of discussion um, come up with? Of how do we how do we judge good from bad? How do we do that? revealed 
morality. The complexities uh, are regarding the cultural ethic of, in America, we have an ethic of, of autonomy and individualistic uh, thing, which essentially is, if your mom says something is right, you're gonna prove her wrong because you can. Um, and so, for me to say that that's saying there's no objective right or wrong because there's disagreements in a family or in a political party um, is to, I think, uh, renounce myself to the social construct in which I live. Um, uh, so, so moving forward a little bit, we'll, we'll come back, we'll have other discussion time. Um, Victor Frankl, who's a psychiatrist who actually went through the Holocaust and wrote about it in a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He says, the gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequences of the theory that man is nothing but the product of heredity and environment, or as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz were ultimately prepared not in some ministry of defense in Berlin, but rather at the desks and lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. So when it comes to the problem of evil and suffering, if you say, okay, I have questions of Christianity and it's so that all the denominations bickering over different things or all of this can, like the people of faith just being like a joke, um, maybe to you, what are the alternate aspects? And if you're a secularist, an atheist, agnostic, a naturalist, a materialist, you think all things can be reduced and explained. Reality stems from a chance collection. Basically, you're just a bunch of atoms. Um, and so the functional lie is what you get. There's no meaning in this world, so we have to invent it to have it. So let's just put on the idea uh, of, of atheism as the, as the best response to the problem of suffering and read some from people who hold to that view. Um, Albert Camus said, there is what, but one truly serious philosophical problem and that is suicide. Should we or should we not do it? Arthur Schopenhauer said, existence is certainly to be regarded as an error. Richard Dawkins says, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Bertrand Russell said, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. This is the end result of a viable or consistent view of I'm random, everything is random, it's all a mistake, there's no story. Jean-Paul Sartre in being in nothingness said, you can cultivate uh, or create a coping skill reality explanation that helps you. But at the end of the day, you're just kidding yourself. Um, and so there's people that spoke of Albert Camus saying, he writes hopelessness, but he lives hope. He philosophizes and puts that on a shelf and then goes and makes merry with his friends. Because if you were trying to live with congruence between what you really believe and what you really live, you kill yourself, which essentially is what, what is admitted here. This is why John Lennox, who has triple PhD in philosophy, physics, and mathematics, a professor at Oxford says, science can tell you that if you add strychnine to someone's drink, it will kill her. But science cannot tell you whether or not you ought to put strychnine into your grandmother's tea in order to get your hands on her property. <laughs> science tells you functional explanations and functional cause and effects. It does not tell you the moral ethics that affect some of these functional things. Um, it doesn't explain free will. So if you go, um, we have uh, philosophers and psychologists who try to explain this. Abraham Maslow says, as far as I know, we just don't have any intrinsic instincts for evil. After everything I've said up to this point, I hope that you roll your eyes at Maslow with me, mm -hmm. um, not out of making fun of him, but out of complete confusion as to his lack of reading 
of the reality world. Frederick Nietzsche actually said something quite opposite about suffering. He understood atheistic philosophy so well that he suggested that the bulk of humanity has misunderstood concepts such as good and evil. In his work, Beyond Good and Evil, Nietzsche wrote, my belief, uh, we believe that severity, violence, slavery, danger in the street and in the heart, secrecy, stoicism, tempters, art, and devilry of every kind, that everything wicked, terrible, tyrannical, predatory, and serpentine in man serves as well for the elevation of the human species as its opposite. Therefore, it is not bad. Okay, let me break that down. If it's true that it's about evolutionary processes, and that's all it is, is natural selection and survival of the fittest, the things that you do for survival, regardless of your justifications or lack thereof, those are things that should be counted as good. Therefore, the acts that you do that are kind of against the norm, uh, supererogatory acts, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but this would be the idea of the weak being protected by the strong in ways that are counterintuitive, the idea that you're going above the call of duty with moral good, though not strictly required acts. Um, these things would be looked at as actually immoral because the idea is you're disrupting the natural process, yeah. therefore, what are you doing? You're contributing to something bad. So he basically said, if we're gonna be consistent within this worldview, we need to say that selfishness is a virtue to a large extent. Nietzsche's point is also that what we call morally evil actually helps humans evolve higher at thinking capacities, quicker reflexes, greater problem-solving skills. So you should be grateful when these things happen in your life. Um, they're deemed as good. Moving, moving, moving forward into the idea that you can be good and other people can be bad, and there's like a whole, this whole idea of how many units of bad do you have to do in your life, or mistakes do you have to make before you're a bad person? I'm a really, she's really a good person, she just makes a lot of bad mistakes. In contrast, he's really bad no matter how many good things you think he's doing, he's bad. Solzhenitsyn says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who wants to destroy a piece of his own heart? And this gets right to it. G.K. Chesterton was asked um, by a newspaper, what is the problem with the world and how do we fix it? And he says, what's the problem with the world? Me. Me. And this is what Jesus was referring to, and this is what made him so incredibly different than everybody else. The Greeks and the Hellenistic culture um, and the Romans and the Oriental mysticism and so many other things that were all around at the time when Christ entered through the world. They would say that you can change this line in your own heart by esoteric knowledge, by rudiments and tradition. Just control yourself. Think this other way. Learn these certain secret things, and then you'll be new. And Jesus said, your acts are evil because you can't change yourself. You're born wrong. We're all born wrong. But that error, that error of Schopenhauer can be fixed. And I'm here to fix it. And you know what they did? They killed him. Because we don't like the idea that we can't save ourselves. But it's because every other worldview, every other religion and philosophy says you can, you can help yourself. And then when you find out that you can't, you don't think it's because it doesn't work. You think it's you're not trying hard enough. How, how many leaves do you turn over before you find that it's always dirty on the other side? How many chapters do you have to get to a new chapter in your life and find it already messed up before it's begun? Before you allow your book to be written by the author and finisher of redemption. So this idea that 
we aren't really broken in our own selves, but that it's a, it's a systemic injustice. But systems are made up of people. Organizations and, and institutions and governments don't get saved. Individuals get saved. Individuals feel transformed. And when they get together with other individuals who are transformed, transformation, it goes up. It's not a trickle down from organizations and big things, but rather, what, who are you? What's inside of you? And what's inside of your conversations with others? And as we look at that, we find it to be quite challenging. And the root about human condition is the root of our attitude about these questions. The longer I look at the depravity in my own life, my own like, why did I do that? Like, who am I? Who asked this question about this? That's just, maybe that's just me. I'm an unstoppable moron at times. And when I really get real with myself, the gospel meets me there. Other philosophies say, try harder. And also, this probably won't work. Os Guinness says that contrast is the mother of clarity. So I want you to really look at your worldview, the origin of where did I come from, what does it mean to be human? Meaning, is this, what is the purpose of life and all the suffering? Morality, how should I live? Is there an objective right and wrong? And destiny, where ultimately am I headed? Where are we headed? These questions have to be answered to, regardless of where you are in a spectrum of belief or unbelief. How consistent and coherent and viable are our beliefs? This is why my case for Christianity is that there is a real moral lawgiver and a real moral law. Um, yeah, I am saying that. I am saying that. So you're saying there's a moral lawgiver. Yes, I am. Um, and I'm saying this because as William Lane Craig said, I think that evil, paradoxically, this whole issue of just the gut-wrenching reasons why we're all sitting here, actually proves the existence of God. My argument would go like this. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Evil does exist, though. Therefore, objective moral values exist. That is to say, some things are really evil. Therefore, God exists. Thus, although evil and suffering at one level seem to call into question God's existence, on a deeper, more fundamental level, they actually prove his existence. William Lane Craig is a his doctor in philosophy, and he's one of the most un, unyielding uh, debaters in this field. And he really speaks to uh, this question of how do we figure this out? G.K. Chesterton also says, uh, but the new rebel is a skeptic. And he will not entirely trust anything, and rightfully so. He has no loyalty, therefore he can never be really a revolutionist. And the fact that he doubts everything really gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind, and the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he's denouncing, but the doctrines by which he could denounce it. As a politician, he will cry out that war is a waste of life, and then as a philosopher, that all life is a waste of time. A Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant, and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. The man of this school goes first to a political meeting, where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts, but then he takes his hat and umbrella, goes on to a scientific meeting, where he proves with eloquence that they practically are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. But then, in his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. And this is the quandary in which we sit. When trying to answer a real problem and feeling completely a lack of tools, a lack of skills, a lack of soundness of mind to answer the question. So I present to you the case 
for Christianity's response to the problem of evil on numerous groundings. The first one being the problem of good. I know you're like, wait, I'm sorry, this is the wrong talk. I came here for the problem of evil. Well, this, this is interesting. Uh, Scott Peck, who is a psychiatrist, wrote in People of the Lie that the problem of evil, for instance, can hardly be separated from the problem of goodness. Were there no goodness in the world, we would not even be considering the problem of evil. It is a strange thing. Dozens of times I have been asked by patients or acquaintances, Dr. Peck, why is there evil in the world? Yet no one has ever asked me in all these years, why is there good in the world? <laughs> it is as if we automatically assume that this is a naturally good world that has somehow been contaminated by evil. And interestingly, the concept of it was a good world that was contaminated is found in only one worldview, which is the Judeo-Christian worldview. The idea that God created things and it was good, it was very, very good. And then, like a warp happened. And ever since then, we've had this, what ought to be, but what is. And we've also had an offer of reconciliation of the two by God himself. Because only God was there when all that happened. You and I were pretty new. Um, we're pretty new. We sort of walked into a situation that was like a really awkward family dynamic we couldn't escape. Um, but it's okay because the gospel accounts for those things. But the, with the problem of good, um, I think it's really interesting that just because we see evil doesn't mean we're seeing no good. Uh, Richard Swinburne is a... Is a as a philosopher, he's really old and British and kind of boring to talk, listen, talk to. But he, he is quite brilliant, and he says, the lack of complete goodness is not the elimination of goodness in general. As soon as you, you see so much goodness, you almost want more of an insatiability of the goodness we see. That's actually quite a gift itself. So he's a half-glass-full kind of problem of evil guy um, in his philosophical discourse, and that's his reasons why. Uh, Richard Dawkins, though, in contrast, says, in the universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason for it, nor any justice. So, my friends who are atheists, which are many, many, many friends, or agnostics, or just people really flirting with atheism again, or other worldviews, this is what they find when they try to seek counsel from their leaders. Um, well, some people are going to get hurt, and other people are going to get lucky, and there's no rhyme or reason to it, there's no justice, and it actually justice doesn't exist, and you're kind of a waste of time, but it can be beautiful to be annihilated, you know? That's the answer you honestly get. This, is, this goes back to sitting with the woman whose son just died and giving her a reason for the problem, versus what is the purpose of the problem? The problem of goodness and the problem of evil can adjust that. So here are some Christian explanations for what went down and how we can cope with it. With, uh, with, with the idea of free will. Um, free will immediately, there's like the room silences. Um, if you believe that there's determinism, that everything is just determined already, um, this is gonna be a problem for you. However, you determined to be here, so I think you should. Um, um, Augustine gave analogies for what went wrong in the world. He talks about rust on iron or rot on a tree, lies corrupting and distorting the truth, um, sadism is a perversion of sexuality, hole in moth and cloth. cloth. He kind of says that the world is a sort of what happened. C.S. Lewis kind of says, the badness of an action consists in pursuing good things by the wrong method or in the wrong way or too much. Um, almost, but not quite. In other words, there must be something good before it can be corrupted. And the idea of free will isn't saying uh, that there's no restrictions. 
I just want to be clear of that. So, for example, if I was hungry and I ate a piece of pizza, then later I was offered some steak, but I was already full. My free will is limited by my prior action, and I have to wait a time, because space-time, like the way that biology works, would constrain me. So I could have the steak, but maybe in a little bit, I'd have to like heat it up later, and it might, might deter me from enjoying the fullness of goodness. But nevertheless, this, this is a very small example of essentially how our prior actions make us constrained. So there are things like uh, your genetic limitations, um, or you know things, things like there's only so much space and so much time in the way that we move through it, so you can only be evil at a quick pace, like that's limited, or you can be good and get that done at a certain pace because that's limited. Um, so this is libertarian kind of free will that is constrained by space-time. Um, but there is moral agency. Uh, St. Augustine proposed a solution to the problem by blaming it on the fall of humanity after disobedience. But essentially, they were tempted to question God's character of the limitations in their lives, and then they, they chose to doubt, and then they chose an action, and then that action brought suffering, and it brought them separation from the relationship from the person who really was perfect in character, and then they experienced more suffering and, and shifted blame, and here we are. Um, he basically says, not only does it absolve the deity, the God, of creating evil, but also allows the deity to show the world love by bringing a former version of um, in physical form of the presence of Christ into the world later on. So Augustine basically says this, the greatest possible good in the entire world that we crave as human beings is relationship with God. And God is so great that he didn't want us to be robots, that he didn't want us to just have to do certain things, or he's so powerful that, you know, um, he speaks out of heaven and says, I'm real and listen to me and obey in like a giant, you know, flashy show to prove his existence and prove that we have to, um, I don't know, then submit and be like, whatever you want. <laughs> um, yeah, you're powerful. Um, some of my friends say, well, if God existed, he should show himself. He shouldn't be so hidden. And Pascal would respond saying, the hiddenness of God is a gift. In this, if you wanted, as a God, real relationship with the creatures you created, would you force them? or coerce them with your power, with your authority, with your perfection? Would you belittle them? No, you would in your greatness allow all the billions of variables they bring about with their agency that you gift them with because the real love they can experience with you by choice rather than coercion is so much sweeter. And you have the power to work in each of their lives in nuanced ways. So is it more powerful to have billions of variables and still work out relationships with humans? or to force it or coerce it in some way. And Pascal essentially, along with Augustine and others, says that God is powerful enough that he gives the moral agency, he gives the create sub-creation abilities to us, that our decisions really carry weight, that you are made in the image and likeness of him with intelligence, with morality, with creativity, with innovation. And then he allows this freedom because the freedom makes the possibility of true love possible. It makes it really able to be grasped. But it also gives the possibility of evil. So there's a distinction philosophically between creating evil or creating the possibility of evil being brought about by something else. The possibility of evil and the cost-benefit analysis, if you're into those sorts of things, is worth it in God's view, apparently. Philosopher Alvin Plantinga is actually one of the most famous uh, secular philosophers who has reformulated this argument to say a world containing creatures who are significantly free and freely perform more good than evil actions is more valuable 
all else being equal than a world containing no free, free creatures at all. Now, God could create free creatures, but he can't cause or determine them to do only what is right. For if he does, they aren't significantly free after all, nor do they do what is right freely. So the things that are done right, freely done right, are worth more than things coerced out of us to do right. And so even those acts as a ripple effect are more valuable and beautiful. So these, philosophically, these things are pretty solved. And a lot of um, arguments and discussions among philosophers, Planning's argument is like a slam dunk case. Um, yet our emotions reel against it. So then there's others as we're kind of winding down towards the end. Um, for what reason really though? Why is it like this? That's, what, that's the question we still have. Because even if there's a philosophical answer, there's this like turmoil in us. Irenaeus uh, talks about in, in 130 AD, uh, he thought the existence of evil served a purpose. That not only is it it's heavy and it's bad, and yeah, we can grieve those things, but it serves a purpose. From his point of view, evil provides the necessary problems through which we take part in what he calls soul-making. From this point of view, evil is a means to an end, inasmuch as it, if it didn't exist, there would be no means of spiritual development. However, with this view, God is the author of evil, but has a purpose in it. So this idea of the nature of God is all good and because he knows that these evils are necessitated. Um, yet this gets really hard to quantify. How many units of good versus how many units of bad to, to level all the field? Um, this is why Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky in The Brothers Karamazov severely criticized this view. He said human suffering being used as a means for good, uh, is, that's condemnable. Um, a, God would never be good at doing that, those things. Um, when I look at lives, though, lives that I really respect and admire, think of one right now, someone you just deeply respect, someone who you know, was a particularly significant and awe-inspiring person. Great lives have great trials. Think of that person's character and how it formed, the relationships and what happened there, their triumphs and sacrifices, the steadfastness demonstrated, all these things. If you take in your mind all of the suffering away from that person. Subtract all the suffering out of those situations. What happened? What happened to that? <laughs> if you take away the suffering, perchance those lives don't look as great. We're not inclined to be awe-inspired. Dr. Vince Vitale um, at Oxford, he was here actually with us a few weeks ago. He says, without the possibility, not the reality, but the possibility of significant suffering, every great true story in history would be false. No one would ever have made a sacrifice for anyone else. There would be no great moments of forgiveness and reconciliation. There would be no opportunities to stand for justice or against injustice. There would be no compassion because there's nothing to be compassionate about. No courage because no dangerous situations are requiring courage. No heroes and no such thing as laying down one's life for one's friends. Criticism without an alternative then is empty. It's easy to get mad at the world God created. But what world should God have created instead? So his, his point is basically this. We, from our vantage point, do not understand the ripple effects of everything that's happened in life, in our own personal life, nor in the lives of those across the world for whom we might be advocating. So for us to try to quantify and judge God who sees from all vantage points and is good in nature and perfect in understanding according to the Judeo-Christian worldview, then how could we possibly point the finger that this hasn't been thought through? Um, C.S. Lewis also discusses basically uh, the concept that it's not that God created evil. It's that he is so good, he can use any evil to bring about good in his world. So he allows for it. He also makes the case 
for suffering in a person's life as bringing forth good that otherwise would not be there. He says there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Your heart will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. So his concept is this. What if to be fully human is not to avoid all suffering, but to be fully human in the midst of suffering? And this is where the Christian worldview is incredibly, incredibly unique. Uh, in skeptical theism, which is good in prominence, it's saying that we shouldn't expect to be able to understand everything that God is doing. God is ways that are unsearchable, as scripture says. He can't be instructed or taught. And this isn't just a, a, a cop-out. Oh, that God works in mysterious ways. That's a cop-out for you Christians. No, no, no. If God were truly as big and powerful as he said he is, and we can explain in detail to one another in complete understanding, that would immediately show that he's not as big or powerful as he is because your brain can understand it. Um, it wouldn't be as impressive if someone had a PhD in mathematics if mathematics was super, super easy, right? Um, so German philosopher Leibniz essentially says that the many ways that God could have created the world and then how we see it actually created should make us rejoice because the, the possible worlds, in contrast to the actualized world, should blow our minds. This is the best possible world that we could live in for the purposes for which it exists. And then he says, essentially, that the bad things, the things that we look at as the most powerless, are exactly what Christianity says are the most powerful moments. So this is where the gospel comes in in ways that we will discuss as we wrap up. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says that all the princes and the kings of the world had no idea that Jesus was who he said he was. And if they really did, they would not have killed him. But they didn't understand, and of course they killed him. But interestingly, that powerless moment of him dying on a cross, confusingly, saying all sorts of confusing things about the kingdom of God, saying all sorts of confusing things, and being a weird, mysterious magician and sorcerer and healer, and said all sorts of predictions about this, but then he died. And all the people who got to know him and love him stood by with despair in their hearts. He died. I thought this would be the way out of suffering. I thought this was the solution, but he died. Interestingly, that most powerless moment, prima facie, was actually the most powerful moment, the climax of human history, where all suffering died and Jesus resurrected. Historians and hostile sources, early and late alike, look at the mysterious resurrection of Jesus as the most historically testified to moment in all history and the most historically bone-fuzzling moment in all of history. Because Christianity essentially says, all of the whole mistakes of humankind is not enough to stop God's love, to stop God's redemptive plan. In the moment of most powerless, hopeless depression and despair in your life, God is at work the very most in those moments. And give a little time, and you can see resurrecting as a phoenix from the ashes, the most hope, the most beauty, the most comfort and meaning of any other story, any other moment in your entire life. We see this in, uh, in Martin Lloyd-Jones Lloyd writing. He talks about areas where people are actually suffering. 
See, I talk with students at Berkeley and Stanford all the time who say, no, 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 that, that, that sounds really too good to be true. But here's the thing. There are people right now in Papua New Guinea who are suffering, and where is God? Where is God? What, what if they don't even know who God is? They've not heard the name of Jesus. Is he going to send them to hell? How is that fair? That's suffering and horrible. I ask, man, I feel your emotions in my gut with you, but my question is, who's the person you're talking about? It's a hypothetical situation in their mind that brings about a real emotion. But let me give you real situations of unlikely conversions, unlikely despairing stories where God did show up, where God did answer those prayers. In China, for example, it is estimated that 20 million people lost their lives, like we were saying about the Cultural Revolution earlier at the beginning. Christians stood firm in what was probably the most widespread and harsh persecution the church has ever experienced around the world. The persecution, though, purified and indigenized the church. Since 1977, the growth of the church in China has no parallels in all of history. Researchers estimate that there were 30 to 75 million Christians by 1990, and Mao Zedong unwittingly became the greatest evangelist in history with what he thought was the worst despair of murder ever. In El Salvador, the 12-year civil war, where earthquakes and the collapse of the price of coffee and the, nation, the nation's main export, it all, all those things conflated to impoverish the nation. Over 80% live in dire poverty. But an astonishing spiritual harvest has been gathered from all strata of society in the midst of the hate and bitterness of war. In 1960, evangelicals were 2% of the population, but today it's over 25% of the population. In Ethiopia, it was a state of shock. Her population struggles instill with the trauma of millions of deaths through oppression, famine, and war. Two great waves of violent persecution refine and purify Christians. But there, and there are many martyrs. There have been millions coming to Christ, though, in the midst of that. Protestants were fewer than 0.8% of the population in 1960, but by 1990, it became 13% of the population and has grown since. The history of mankind has been a history of suffering and war. It's been a history, though, of the advance of the kingdom of God in the midst of that. In every broken moment, there's beauty. Um, beauty. I talked with Rabbi Kaidman, who works here and at Stanford, and he talks about um, a story of a man who his job was to carry pots of water to and from the well into the village, and his pot unfortunately had a crack in it. And so he was not being as productive as other people, and he was losing money for his family, and he just felt horrible. But after a few months, when spring came, they found that where the water had dripped out of his bucket all along the way, there were beautiful flowers all along, and the village was known for the beauty and it was because of this man's broken vessel. The parable speaks to all the ways that you feel broken are the ways that God, the God who suffers with, is coming to us. So this is what the beauty of the gospel is, as we come to a close and really consider this. There's a difference between explanatory power of the problem of evil and suffering and the experiential presence. As you talked about Christians sitting with you at the death of your mother, what about when you yourself feel like you don't want to live with yourself? When I was 19, I was raped. And the man who raped me was Greek Orthodox, so I remember very vividly in my mind the Greek Orthodox cross waving in front of my face as I was being assaulted, which is very symbolic of how many people feel about religion itself. Unfortunately, I was in a very legalistic community of Christians. As myself, I was a non-believer. And I was treated like scarlet lettered, and I felt shamed. And the rape culture was such that after a two and a half year long trial, myself and three other girls, this man assaulted, 
who testified, and he was acquitted. And I felt complete injustice by the religious people, by the court system, by community, and in my own heart, I got to a place of suicide. I truly thought my pain would never go away, that I would never be pure, I would never be loved. I internalized all of the things. But then Jesus, but then Jesus, he's the most dignifying person in the world. We see him going to those who are marginalized and oppressed in a way that no other religious leader has ever done in all of history. To the woman at the well, known to be a prostitute, known to be shamed and shoved aside, who had suffered herself, he went to her and said, I will give you water and you will never thirst again. He said to the woman with the issue of blood, who for 12 years sought healing from all sorts of doctors, sought healing from all sorts of people, and found no hope. She was ostracized from the community and crawled with such, how humiliating, miserable, and then crawling to just, if I could just get healed. And Jesus looked at her when no one else would look at her. And he said, your faith has made you whole. And he spiritually and physically fixed her suffering. Interestingly enough, Jesus was on the way to Jairus' house. Jairus, who was not a Christian, was a Jewish leader in pomp and circumstance, came to him in desperation with his daughter, very, very sick. Jesus, come to my house. I hear you're, you're able to do these amazing things. Come to my house. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm, I'm, on, my, I'm on my way. And he was thronged by the multitudes. And Jairus is sitting there. Can you imagine? Jesus is like, yeah, I'll help. And then, like, I thought help was on the way, God. I thought help was on the way, but now it's like she's getting sicker. Someone comes from his house and says, don't even worry about it. She died. I can only imagine Jairus' heart just, Jesus lied to me. Jesus lied to me. He was my last shot, and it's a joke. It's a lie. I'm humiliated, and this is wrong. But Jesus, with no condemnation, looks at Jairus and says, do not be afraid. Only believe. And Jesus went with Jairus to his house, did not just heal this girl, resurrected her. Numerous things are in this, this one passage in Mark chapter 5 that I'm referring to, one of which is the time frame of commentators would say that the girl was 12 years old, and this woman had had an issue of blood for 12 years. And it's interesting with suffering how relative it is. We were talking earlier about how our personal things really read into situations. She's only 12. You took her from me so soon, and I've had this for 12 same amount of time, completely different experience. What's interesting is that Jesus knows how to do triage in ways that we do not. He knows how to do triage in which he will meet your need, and he will meet the needs of others, and in the order that is proper. This woman was in the, in, in the crowd that thronged Jesus, that delayed him from going to Jairus' house. Jairus didn't know that. He didn't know her story. He's all up in his own suffering, which totally makes sense. And she doesn't know she's delaying this other situation from happening. We're all in our own stories, but Jesus sees it all. And God says, I'm going to suffer with, and I'm going to fix it all in the timing that brings the most glory to my ability for power amongst all the billions of variables of chaos, and brings your faith and refinement to fruition. What kind of story in your life would you rather? Yeah, Jesus was awesome. He healed he healed me when I was sick. Versus, yeah, I was dead, and now I'm not. So, this is why Rabbi Zacharias says, Jesus in Christianity is not about making bad people good. It's about making dead people 
live. Dead people live. The interesting thing that Nietzsche even said about Christianity, the gods justified human life by living it themselves. The only satisfactory response to the suffering ever invented. He looks at he looks at people like ancient Greeks, and remarkably, he never made the connection to Christianity from there. That the Greeks always had kind of humanoid sort of gods that experienced human emotions, and that's why we are attracted to this mythology. But Jesus was God in the flesh. He's not a distant God. He didn't create the suffering. He wants to transform the suffering, and he's present with us in the midst of the suffering. Tim Keller says in the book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, look at Jesus. He was perfect, right? And yet he goes around crying all the time. He's always weeping, a man of sorrows. But do you know why? Because he's perfect. When you are not all absorbed in yourself, you can feel the sadness of the world. And therefore, what you actually have is that the joy of the Lord happens inside of sorrow. It doesn't come after the sorrow. It doesn't come after the uncontrollable weeping. The weeping drives you deeper into the joy. It enhances the joy. And then the joy enables you to actually feel your grief without it sinking you. In other words, you are finally emotionally healthy because Christianity teaches, contrary to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contrary to Buddhism, suffering is real. Contrary to karma, suffering is often unfair. But contrary to secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is purpose to it, and faced rightly, it can dive, drive us like a nail deep into the love of God, into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. This also reminds me of, again, God being the author and finisher, the author and perfecter of our faith, the author and perfecter of human story, the telos of this. What is it doing? Reminds me of Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is very long. Um, I'm in movie form, but also in books, it's like three books, and there's like there's like a sequel before. It's just like, oh my gosh, this saga is so long. Um, I remember when they... Uh, at one point, Frodo was on like a, on a big bird, and it was like, fine. I was like, why didn't they just show up earlier so they didn't have to like go through all of the other stuff. Um, if you were a hobbit and at any point in that story, could you imagine just being like, for real right now? Like, um, on a scale of one to 10, uh, or one to Lord of the Rings, how much have you walked today? It's like, why are they going on and on and on? It's just like unbelievable. And yet, interestingly, it makes it an epic. It makes it an epic, and the character development and the ways in which all of these things wind together and make a beautiful story, imagine the epic if a God really is powerful in that work. Samwise Gamgee says near the end, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Dostoevsky says in another book, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Going back to my story, I've only been following Jesus for six years, and let me tell you the amount of redemption and gratitude I have in my life. That is unbelievable. I had literally a pile of crap. That situation is only one of the series of situations, like the series of unfortunate events was like my life. Um, part of it was mine, part of it was others, and Jesus was like, yes, I can... I'm in the business of working with that. There's a point in which I had a dream that Jesus bathed me 
and washed me clean with such gentleness and wrapped me in a silk robe of purple and looked at me with so love, so much love, so much acceptance that all of my pain washed away. I was reading scripture about sexual ethics and I was feeling like I would never be clean from my own decisions after what had happened to me. Feeling so much shame, feeling so much shame. And scripture says that when you fornicate or different things about sexuality, you're sinning against your own body. And instead of feeling condemned by God, I felt him say, sin against my own body. He was saying, I love your body more than you do. And I tell you not to treat it this way because I love you so much. I'm telling you to do these things with morals and ethics, not to kill your fun, to take away your, your flourishing, but to help protect you from yourself or from others who don't understand. I want you to be healed. And he healed us. And what's interesting is on the night that I got saved, I thought of the verse Isaiah 1.18. Of course, I'm real smart, so, you know, I was thinking of the first part of the verse where Jesus says, come, let us reason together. And I'm like, all right, I like the sounds of that. And the last half of the verse is, though your sins be as scarlet, I will wash you white as snow. That's all we have to reason about. Of all the complexities in the world, the situation of scripture is saying it's done. It is finished. What if someone solved the problem and is like, here's relationship. Will suffering still happen? Yes. Oh, man. If I knew upon getting saved what was going to happen with the rest of my life as a Christian, I probably wouldn't have done it. But there's this point when Peter's talking to Jesus in which he has that kind of feeling. And, and Jesus asks him, where are you, know, are you two going to go away? And he says, to whom else would I go? And every time I ask my heart that question, to whom else would I go, I look at the altar and this, and I'm like, wow, there are more gaping holes there than in this complex situation. I guess I will stay. But the beauty about Jesus is that he says, you get my righteousness. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's happened to you. It doesn't define you. What defines you is what work was done on the cross. All of the rudiments and traditions of man, all of the evil was nailed to the cross, blotted out by the blood of Jesus, completely perfect sacrifice, so that all we have now is a best friend to go through suffering with and complete purity given through the purity of Jesus. In contrast with every other religion, that is amazing as a response to suffering. A purpose and a presence in the midst. Thank you. That was amazing. Um, so we still have a little bit of time and I would love if there's like probably two or three questions that we can take right now. So. Um, was there anything that you guys were still grappling with? We went through a lot of really rich content. Any questions? Yes, Erica. Um, so, this is going to be kind of a general question, but like, what would you suggest that like, like someone who's following Christ, what would their posture be going through stuff? anyone didn't hear her question was what do you suggest is a posture for a Christian um, when they're faced with suffering yeah um, Jesus uh, allows us to come to God as serious family um, by the spirit of adoption we can cry Abba Father and what's so beautiful is that 
we can treat him not as the creator of the universe alone, but as our dad. Tim Keller says, uh, the audacity of a three-year-old to waltz into a king's room in the, at you know, 4 a.m., I'm thirsty, can I have water? Um, you can't get away with that unless you're like the king's kid, right? Like um, someone in the king's court, someone outside does that, good luck. Um, but scripture says we can come boldly to the throne of grace to get help in our time of need, boldly. So I would say the posture would be knowing your identity as child of God, deeply loved. You're not a bother, you're not a nuisance. Dale Moody would say, some people say, I don't want to bother God by constantly coming and asking. What bothers God is if you don't come at all. He would rather have you come. So knowing he's your father and he wants you to come to him, especially when you're scared in the middle of the night, especially when you're so sad you can't breathe, especially when you start to doubt his goodness. He wants you to clarify with him. We see Job wrestling with him through things. We see David just like straight up manic depressive in front of him. And God called him the apple of his eye. This honest vulnerability. And we also see boldness. The boldness of my identity allows me access. Scripture says, 1 Peter 5, 7 and 8, Casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. And the F means constant caring. And it's interesting because the very next verse says, For your enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. If you're weary and burdened and you don't give it to God, that's an opportunity and a foothold for the enemy to turn you away from the one who would take your burden, to, to maul you in the midst of having the burden that you could have gotten rid of. So I would say it's important spiritually to give your problems to the Lord, to be open and honest. That would be interesting with assurance that he'll be present with you. Okay. Do we have one more question? So kind of like in a nutshell, kind of sounds like you're saying uh, suffering gives us Gives us purpose and gives us like presence in the midst of all of that. Well, then, what about heaven? If suffering is not there, then what's the purpose? What's the presence? Mm. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, philosophically that would be a category mistake. Like your understanding. So basically, that suffering is not what gives us purpose. Purpose is there regardless of suffering or absence of suffering. So the purpose is to know God and enjoy him forever. So that would be like John Piperism, you know. <laughs> but suffering is essentially, uh, I, I just think of the passages of, I'm convinced and persuaded that neither death nor life nor this nor that will keep me against the love of God. In that list would be any form of suffering we could possibly experience. That doesn't mean suffering is required for purpose. It's to say suffering is not an inhibitor of purpose being achieved. So I would say that the the idea of in, in as if you're a Christian, we have power over sin. In the moment, we have the presence of God with us to help us kill sin. You know, it's kill sin. We have power over it. But the presence of sin is still there. Heaven is going to be awesome because there's not going to be presence of sin to to deal with and experience God's love in the midst of. It's um the purpose is the greatest love of God being experienced, and with no no possible interruption, that's going to be even better. Um, I also think that all of the all of the plots that get us to in the greatest possible world would be the world to come. That this world, as it is, was necessitated for us to become the kind of people that will enjoy that world. 
um, the kind of people who know the Lord. And so, I, does, that, does that make sense? And just to add to that, um, to clarify the notion of uh, suffering as a purpose in and of itself, uh, she mentioned what the, the purpose really is. Um, I'd say that to clarify her point of regarding purpose in suffering is just the reality that God can take anything evil and harmful and terrible and turn it to good. So it's not that the original purpose was the evil or the suffering. It's that with the, given the existence of suffering, that he can turn it to good, that there's a redemption story. So he takes that and he can use it. But let's be clear that that's not the only thing he uses to bring purpose, to bring glory, to bring, to bring an experience of his love or his nearness of his presence. So I just want to clarify that we're not glorifying suffering. We're glorifying God in the midst of suffering because it is a given, given our humanity. I wanted to add on to Kim's question. Um, so we talked about at one point where suffering allows for beauty to exist in the form of courage mm-hmm. or in the form of uh, fighting injustice or standing up for justice, um, forgiveness and mercy, mm-hmm. reconciliation, all those great things. Um, I think Andy brings up an interesting point where if in heaven every tear is wiped away and all suffering goes away, mm-hmm. um, it sounds like to me that therefore there would be an opportunity for courage or opportunity to like fight against injustice or to heal and to show mercy or reconciliation. And so therefore would it be kind of sadistic for me to say that that sounds kind of boring? <laughs> um, no, I don't think that. Hear that. Yeah, that's great. Um, no, this is a great question. I think space and time is really weird. Um, and that's kind of the framework that we think in. Um, so the, the courage and the, all the things that we talked about, that suffering can be used for courage and, and honor and integrity and whatever. Like if you have experience in which you have to exercise those things. Once those are exercised and those are in a character, they're in a character. So I, the, the people who are, in, are in, being with God and being with people of God in heaven, I think will be incredibly exciting because the, the suffering will be past, but the character developed through the suffering will be present. And interestingly, Revelation, it's the only, we're the only worldview that accounts for uh, all sorts of cultures. And Revelation says every tribe, tongue, nation will be present. And can you believe how many stories of all those things will be told, but in, in past tense? What would be better is like going through a war scene all the time or like sitting around a campfire comfortably explaining war stories and being like nah together. So imagine meeting like so many people you've never met from across time and space with all their various contexts of stories in which their character and the presence of God was experienced through all their turmoils. But it talked about with an absence of those sufferings, but an understanding of it. Kind of like when you look at a scar and you're like, I remember that. That was gnarly. Blah, 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 blah. And your friends are like, whoa. But like, you don't want to like, you can't enjoy the story for reliving the story at the time. And then I tell about the time my femur broke. Oh my God, I'm experiencing it right now again. It would totally take it away. So I think heaven is a, is a place of like perfect peace, but memory not only of your own things, but of all the things. How is that going to be boring? Scripture says that though now we see through glass darkly, then we will see all of it. We will see him face to face. We will, we will see through time and space how God has fashioned 
all these are complex stories. I think that's gonna take a while. I don't know, like eternity, supposedly. Um, I, I don't think it's gonna be like, just like hanging out with, like harps and like on clouds and being kind of, I mean, we're all pretty productive people. We live in the Silicon Valley, you know, we like notes up. Um, right. So I mean, I think that to to assume that it's not going to be complex, the amount of beauty and the level of harmonies and experiences that will be expressed and reminisced, um, I think that's going to. Does that make sense? Like it won't be boring at all. It'll be like a grand storytelling of an infinite number of stories to describe an infinite levels of this courage and rejoicing and being courageous, having withstood it all. Yeah. And this will be the last question. Sitting with people, and Jesus talks about uh, mourn with those who mourn, um, 
scripture actually doesn't say tell someone who's mourning to rejoice. <laughs> mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Be present. Um, and through that, that person's going to remember that moment. You don't have to talk about this at all. In the moment in which someone is suffering, it's not a good time to be like, would you like to talk about the philosophical implications of what you believe about suffering in contrast to all the other things you could possibly think about suffering? And let me compare and contrast like Islamic, Christianity, Judaism, and Buddhism, and Hinduism, and atheism for you, and then you can decide which one actually is a sufficient explanation for what you're going through. Um, no, it's not a time for that. They can't receive that. That's not going to go well. But being super present with them silently and letting them talk is the best thing we can possibly do. And over time, they will watch, and if there's relationship there, they're your friends, right? They're gonna see, how do you go through suffering? How do you go through suffering with other people? Um, and they will ask questions. Scripture says, have, hope, have an answer for the hope that is within you. An answer implies that a question has been asked of you. If there's not a question being asked of you, you don't have to, you know, otherwise you're just shutting something out someone's throat or you're giving it, you know, you're, at, you're answering a question that's not being asked in the moment. And therefore you're just sort of being like an overbearing mom or something. No, sorry to moms. Um, you know, so it's kind of, I, I would say being present and then having a lifestyle of approachability so that when a question is asked, you can sit in honesty with that, with that question. Um, and so the power of testimony is really helpful. Um, several of my, um, my family members are not Christian and generally what it looks like is they tell me a story and then I tell them a story. Not one up in one another and not in the same moment necessarily, but like a series of narratives in which like folded inside the narrative is like an aspect of hope. So some of my research um, after grad school now has been post-traumatic studies, like ideas of um, how does someone become uh, more healthy or flourishing or more dysfunctional after they go through traumas of various sorts. Um, and so telling stories and sharing stories that you've heard from others or different things and then just saying, and then asking about what is this story saying um, is interesting. So for example, how I, how I, how I recovered from trauma. Um, I have brought that in if I'm talking to someone who's experiencing that very exact kind of trauma, but only if asked. A lot of times if there's just no explanation. I, I would say though, um, I cut out of this presentation like all the other worldviews that I, I could have explained what suffering looks like. Um, I usually try to talk with someone from the perspective that they hold um, until, they, until they kind of get to a point of like, oh, maybe, maybe my worldview isn't giving a good account that's helpful to me anymore. What else is there? Oh, that's an interesting question. Let's maybe look at that together. So leaving it kind of in their power, like where they want the conversation to go. But I do, so a lot of times if I'm meet, meeting with someone who's a Muslim, I'll speak to them from that worldview. Um, or I'll allow them to, if, if you don't know, yeah, as an apologist and counselor, I guess it's different than like, if, let's say you don't know about somebody's worldview. Um, just listening to them in that worldview. And then if they speak to something that you like, feel God answered in your own life about the presence of God and suffering, and they seem to have an absence of that, be like, well, ask a question, a thoughtful question, just one in one conversation of, have you ever felt really alone in your suffering, um, even though you believe in God? Like, or if, you know, if you, if they don't believe in God, saying, you know, uh, how do we not kill ourselves in this suffering? Like, what what do you hold on to? Um, these questions do do come up. In fact, this last weekend, a friend of mine from high school committed suicide. So I've been getting a lot of calls from non-Christian friends, um, and I, a lot of the conversations literally are just like um, very similar to an anchorman when he's calling from the phone booth, just screaming and crying. He's like, I'm in a glass cage of emotion. <laughs> Oh, the man on the bridge, he punted Baxter. And there's like not really, there's no like rhyme or reason going on. Um, and that 
has an impact because in maybe three or four months, they'll be like, remember the time I called you from that phone booth, weepy? Well, now I have questions. And then there's an opening. Does that make sense? So always listen to the, to the guy in the phone booth, weepy. Thank you so much, Abby. That was really rich. And for those of you guys who are new here, again, we would love to continue this conversation with you. And so feel free to reach out to arcministries.org connect. And we're happy, um, as requested, to connect you with Abby. And then also, if you have any questions, just to get to know more people in our community and learn more stories about how God's been moving in our lives. We'd love to share and we'd love to hear your questions because we know when, he seek, when you guys seek, you'll definitely find it's an invitation from God. Um, and yeah, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to just explore God with our mind and for those of us who've chosen God to love him with our mind through this talk and just also with our heart and exploring and struggling through suffering in our own lives. So thank you so much. If we could give her another round of applause.